Nearly 30% of all rural hospitals in the United States are at risk of closure, including 10% at immediate risk of closure. Mixed payment models, fixes that made things worse, and the effects of inflation demand a new look at how rural hospitals are paid and sustained. So, how do rural hospitals identify and advocate for data-backed payment reform? With a critical look at what's not working, an understanding of what is working, and a push for a game-changing payment model. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 89 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hotshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. So, Rachel, I've often cited the data reported by Scott Becker and also contained within the Becker's Healthcare Review. Uh, and you often stop me and you'll say, J.J., it's not Scott Becker who's quoting that. <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, she he's is, reporting yes, on he's it. He's reporting but, on it. Yeah. And, uh, and others, uh, not just Beckers, but right. others uh, in our industry who uh, report the numbers of rural hospitals that are at risk of closure uh, in America. And when we get that, Rachel, it's very sobering because mm-hmm. we're a rural hospital. We know that all the payment changes. We know that the challenges of staffing, the challenges of uh, supply chain, you name it, has negatively impacted hospital operations for the last several years, uh, pre-pandemic, you know, it started, pandemic just accelerated it mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of places. In some places, it slowed it down because of the payments that they received from the federal government. But now they're back on track to some of these challenges. So um, we've often cited, you know, some very uh, sobering numbers and uh, statistics associated with that on this program. And then as we've discussed this at conferences and other places. So um, today, we're going to get it straight from the source. That is right. We are talking with someone who has worked on developing and reviewing alternative healthcare payment models across the industry and has a particular focus on rural health. That's right. Our guest today is Harold Miller, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform. It's so exciting to have you with us. Welcome to Rural Health Rising today, Harold. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's nice to be here. So to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at CHQPR, if we can call it that, (laughs) the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform. Sure, it is a long name. I run the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform. It was started about 15 years ago because of a realization that one of the biggest barriers to delivering safe, high-quality healthcare is the current payment system. Hospitals and physicians actually get paid less when they deliver better health care. And in some cases, there's no payments at all for the services that help patients the most. So our goal is to try and fix that so physicians and hospitals are paid adequately to deliver the services that patients need safely and efficiently. You know, um, so a little bit about, you know, who you are and a little bit about what the organization does. But, you know, one of the things that's very important for us um, is laying the foundation. Um, and so we're going to do that um, by starting with the why. And we do this on every one of our podcasts. And the reason we do it is we get to know our guests just a little bit better. Uh, and so what I'm, what I'm most interested in, we've had a chance to review some of your work, and uh, today I'm excited to, to get to dive into it a little bit deeper. But I want to know, and, and our listeners want to know, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? Well, every day, 
people die because they received poor quality health care because they couldn't get the services that they needed. And the problem isn't a lack of money. We spend $3 trillion per year on health care in this country. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the money isn't going to the right places. Um, mm-hmm. And the only way we will fix that is if people understand the real causes of the problem and the changes that would help solve those problems. So when I get up every day, I try to do something to help address that. I worked in state government for a number of years. I worked in economic development uh, for a number of years and then um, was asked by a friend of mine to uh, help her look at the issue of whether hospitals made money or lost money whenever patients got infections because um, um, this was the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative had worked on a method of trying to uh, reduce and actually eliminate uh, hospital-acquired infections and had trouble getting hospitals to adopt those methods. And um, the question was, why was that? And uh, what we discovered looking into it was that hospitals would actually lose money Um, if they eliminated hospital-acquired infections. Um, And that sort of opened the door to then starting to look at all the different aspects of healthcare where people actually were penalized financially for doing a better job. So I Mm -hmm. started working in various places around the country in communities um, with a variety of medical specialty societies to look at different aspects of care and finding these problems and trying to figure out what to do with them. Um, And the problems are very strange in some cases. I mean, uh, for example, um, you might wonder, or maybe you don't wonder, but people generally get, if they have cataracts, they get cataracts done, their surgery is done on two different days. Many people think that that's because that's better. It actually isn't better. The reason why they get their cataracts done on two different days is because Medicare only pays half as much for the second cataract surgery if it's done on the same day, even though what cataract Mm -hmm. surgeons do to try to prevent infections is that they do each of the cataract surgeries essentially completely independently And neither they nor the surgery center or the hospital can afford to do the second surgery basically at half the cost. But it's it's worse for the patient in many cases, and particularly in rural areas, if people have to travel a long distance to get cataract surgery and they can't get both eyes done on the same day and then they're seeing mm-hmm. you know different different visions out of different eyes so when you look at almost every aspect of healthcare you will find these things that's just one example um, you know of things where um, the patients can't actually get the best quality care because of something about the payment system. Um, And so I started working on rural hospitals a number of years ago because of an effort um, started in Washington State to try to uh, help the rural hospitals there, which Mm -hmm. led me to develop a greater understanding of why rural hospitals were losing money. And um, I used to say Mm -hmm. that oncology was the most complicated payment system in America. And I concluded (laughs) that after looking at rural hospitals, that rural hospitals are the most complicated so that's a longer winded answer than you probably wanted. No, it's, that's, that's exactly what I wanted. Exactly. That's, that was something that I had read. Um, the part about the hospital acquired infections um, that I had read from some of the stuff on your website. And 
it's looking at and thinking about care in such a different way and finding where are the financial incentives that need to be done the other way around that are not intentional, but that's how they've ended up existing. And um, I think that is a similar issue of a lot of what we see with rural hospitals, but we'll get into that. Well, you know, certainly the complexities of payment models and, you know, to your point, Harold, yeah, oncology, when I was involved early on in oncology, I I honestly thought, wow, you you can't get more complex and convoluted. And then I became a hospital CEO of a rural hospital. And I realized, (laughs) oh, my goodness, you talk about, you know, all these payment structures and talk about, you know, disproportionate hospital share and uh, all of those things and, you know, look backs. And it's like, wow, it is extremely complex. And so I appreciate your perspective on that. And so, you know, obviously, before we we get into all of the payment details, um, what I'm most interested in is learning a little bit more about the report uh, that you prepare and and provide uh, regarding uh, hospitals that are at risk of closure. Um, so, so I guess first and foremost is why do you put the report out? And uh, the the overarching question is, you know, how is that uh, calculated? What is you know how, what's taken into consideration for your numbers? Well, the purpose of the report is to prompt action in enough time to actually prevent rural hospitals from closing. You can't wait until the hospital is in the process of shutting down to try and save it. You have to start when the warning signs first appear. Um, and the methodology is actually quite simple. It looks at whether a hospital has been losing money delivering patient services over the course of several years, because if it has been losing money over the course of several years and that continues, it's not going to be able to stay open. So the methodology looks to see if the hospital has been losing money for, for several years and then if it doesn't have enough reserves to sustain those losses in the future, or if it has been relying on some special source of grant money to help it stay open, that there is no assurance is going to continue. Because if that money would evaporate or leave, then um, the hospital will not be able to stay open. So the idea is let's identify those circumstances early enough to be able Mm -hmm. to make sure that they don't happen. And in some cases, the hospital may end up being fine. It may be a temporary problem, but you want to determine that for sure before you suddenly say, Mm -hmm. gee, I wish we would have done something several years earlier before this this problem occurred. So what's the difference between, because you have the hospitals that are at risk of closure, and then you have this other or subset, I guess, within that group of at risk, at immediate risk of closure. So what's the delta between those two? Well, it's partly an issue of time. So um, if a hospital Mm -hmm. is losing money and already essentially has negative net assets, in other words, its liabilities are bigger than its assets, so it has no reserves in place, then it's at immediate Mm -hmm. risk. Um, If the hospital has some reserves, um, but is likely to spend them down in a few years, or if the hospital is relying on, say, local tax revenues or something to support it, and there's no assurance that those revenues are either going to continue or that they would be large enough to make up a bigger deficit, you know, if if it's a deficit occurring over time, then those hospitals are listed as being at high risk but not at immediate risk. Um, And again, the issue there is to make sure that maybe everything will stay fine for, you know, for the foreseeable future, but one should, the community should make sure that they know whether that's true um, and not just assume that everything will be okay. 
So we know, obviously, payment reform is not a new discussion in healthcare, um, and especially in rural. We've been creating various new payment models at least since the 1990s um, that I know of off the top of my head with critical access. Um, how do you measure the success of those various models, and would you consider any of them to have been successful? Well, I think success is relative. The critical access hospital program has been successful in helping a lot of rural hospitals stay open. Unfortunately, the program was originally designed to pay hospitals 101% of their costs for treating Medicare patients. But today, under federal sequestration rules, the hospital only gets 99% of its costs. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. no business in America that could stay open if it was only getting paid 99% of its costs. And moreover, that payment system only applies to about a third of the patients in the hospital. Private health plans generally pay even less than Medicare. Um, So while the critical access program has helped, um, it's not surprising that even critical access hospitals have closed if they don't get the kind of support for the rest of their patients um, that they need. Um, And moreover, a lot of seniors are now starting to sign up for Medicare Advantage plans without realizing that they're basically then denying the hospital a Mm cost-based payment for their care because the Medicare Advantage plan is not under any obligation um, to do that. Uh, Other Medicare programs like the um, low-volume hospital program um, have been helpful to the hospitals uh, that have received them um, uh, mm-hmm. by providing higher Medicare payments. But um, the, the, the amounts are not really necessarily based on any actual measure of the cost. So it's nice to get more than you would otherwise get, but it's not nice if it's not enough to be able to actually cover the cost. And for example, the low volume hospital program only applies to inpatient services, as I'm sure you know, as you know, I think you are a low value hospital, uh, low volume, mm-hmm. low, value, mm-hmm. sorry, low volume hospital. Um, yeah. And that only applies to inpatient services and not to other services that the hospital uh, delivers. So all of these programs help a little bit, but they don't necessarily solve the entire problem that a rural hospital is facing. So, you know, Rachel and I spent uh, three days in Washington, D.C. not too long ago, and we actually cited, you know, the the information from your study about those hospitals that are at risk of closing. And some of the, you know, conversation was around the LVA uh, because we are a low-volume adjustment hospital and uh, then sequestration, right? And so we're high Medicaid, Medicare population, as most rural hospitals are, you know, in our respective communities uh, for rural. You know, Medicaid is a very large portion of the of the working poor. Uh, these are folks that are either on disability and or that are working, but making eight, nine, ten dollars an hour. You know, and these individuals then you know can qualify for Medicaid. Uh, Medicare, likewise, you know, as you've indicated, pays us better than Medicaid, but still, it's we're not making any profitability off of two of our largest patient volumes, seventy percent of our patient volume is Medicaid, Medicare. And then the government says such things, Harold, well, we're going to cut, you know, LVA. We're going to dismantle, uh, you know, programs such as disproportionate share. We're going to then uh, implement sequestration. And that is a prescription for disaster 
for hospitals. And no matter how much cash that's on hand, as you know, at some point that mix, those hospitals are going to close. There is no way around it unless there's some different type of payment model that is in place for rural hospitals. Now, many people argue with us like, well, why is rural any different? Why should it be considered different? For all of those reasons we just spoke about, right? For the fact that we are serving the disproportionate uh, population, that we are serving individuals who are 70%. Well, I I, I would have to say I, I disagree with you to some extent. I mean, I don't disagree that Medicare needs to pay better um, and that Medicaid needs to pay better. But there are many, many, particularly very small rural hospitals around the country, that their problem is not Medicare and Medicaid. Their problem is private health plans uh, because sure. the, the dirty little secret of healthcare is that while private health plans pay large hospitals very high amounts of high, high payments, they pay many small rural hospitals even less than Medicare. And in many cases, I mean, there are states that pay critical access hospitals better on Medicaid better than cost. Much better. Um, And those hospitals are actually facing a problem because private health plans are paying less. So every payer needs to pay uh, better. But I think some of the smallest rural hospitals that have been closing, uh, people believe that somehow that is a Medicare and Medicaid problem. And in many cases, it has actually been a private health insurance problem. And we need to shine a clearer light on that because I think a lot of private health plans have been basically getting off the hook. Uh, with everybody mm-hmm. assuming that they must be doing the right thing and the problem needs to be solved in Washington, when a lot of it, it comes back to the to the community themselves and which health insurance plans they're buying. Yeah, and that, that's and, interesting. And, and it was actually going to be my my second point, which was we don't have the negotiating power to sit down with right. the insurance company. So we do lean on Medicaid and Medicare and those programs. And that's why a lot of our advocacy efforts as a rural hospital have went towards that because of the fact that when I sit down with Blue Cross, they don't even sit down with me. Blue Cross Blue Shield, none of those companies, honest to goodness, they don't sit down. Right. It is simply, here's what we're giving you. In bigger institutions, and this is the distinction I was making, um, in bigger institutions, they ask, well, why is it different in rule? It's different because I have no authority to set at the table and negotiate that price. They tell me, oftentimes far lower than Medicaid and Medicare rates, here's what we're going to pay you, JJ. Right. And so so that is why we as rural hospitals have often looked towards state and, and federal government to say, help us solve this problem. But to your point, this is a greater problem that involves those insurance mixes. And so the concern we have in in mergers and acquisitions is as these mergers and acquisitions occur in communities like Michigan, and they also control health plans, it squeezes rural hospitals like ours. So, so when we look to the government, it is truly saying as a last ditch effort, number one, suspend, you know, uh, sequestration. Number two, what uplifts can you give rural hospitals? And it has been the fight of our lives. But we do and we did, you know, quote your um, stats and, and talk about those that are potentially at risk of closing and those immediate at risk of closing. But one of the things that was interesting I want to talk to you about on your online uh, rural healthcare risk of closing report um, is that many of the commonly proposed solutions that often are offered by politicians, uh, you know, private health insurance companies don't work. And I was just hopeful that you could walk us through what that what that is. 
Sure. Well, the most recent, um, obviously, is the new federal rural emergency uh, hospital program um, in which a small hospital or a critical access hospital that converts to a rural emergency hospital can get a new $3 million grant, federal grant each year. Um, But in order to get the grant, it has to stop providing inpatient care. Um, And just imagine what would have happened during the pandemic if none of the rural hospitals had been able to provide inpatient care. The death rate would have even been higher than it was. The the New York Times called this an excruciating choice, either getting $3.2 million more to cover your deficit or delivering the inpatient services that the community needs. And hospitals shouldn't be facing uh, that kind of a choice. Another so-called solution that that, that the federal government has been uh, pushing for several years, giving the hospital hospital a global budget. Um, So rather than getting paid based on the costs of the services the hospital delivered, it would just get a lump sum of money each year, which means the hospital would get paid even if it delivered fewer services than what the community needs. And it wouldn't be paid any more if the community needed more services. So again, imagine what would have happened during the pandemic if a hospital Mm -hmm. was packed with COVID patients, but it couldn't get any more money to be able to pay for those additional, the additional staff and the additional costs that were needed to treat those patients. Um, So those get proposed as solutions. Uh, They don't work, but everybody waits around to see if that's uh, going to work. And again, Mm -hmm. as I said earlier, the problem is most of those so-called solutions focus on the federal government um, and don't Mm -hmm. do anything to solve the problem of of private payers. Um, And back at the beginning, you you mentioned the issue of of data-driven solutions. And I think part of the problem is that rural hospitals have not done enough to make the problems that they're experiencing with private payers uh, clear. And it's not just the amount of payment. In many cases, it's whether there is payment and when the payment comes. Um, So if the health plan denies all the claims uh, for some arbitrary reason and the hospital doesn't have the staff capacity to rebill for all those claims or doesn't have the the cash flow to be able to sit and wait for that, the hospital can be hurt every bit as much uh, by that as the amount that it's paid. But there's no data available on um, the you know accounts receivable and the payment rates uh, for um, private health plans in rural hospitals. And I think that that needs to be more, people need to be more aware of that if we're going to solve it. Absolutely. So in your latest report um, that just came out a couple days ago uh, called A Better Way to Pay Rural Hospitals, you propose a model called patient-centered payment. So can you break that down for us? What is patient-centered payment and how is it better than the other models out there? Sure. Patient-centered payment is intended to pay adequately for the services that patients need rather than just paying in ways that make more profits for hospitals or health plans. Currently, rural hospitals do two different things for patients, but the hospitals are only paid for one of them. The hospital delivers services to patients when they are sick, but the hospital is also there standing by to deliver services in case patients need them. The hospital is paid when some patient comes in for services, but there's no payment at all for the hospital to cover the costs of that standby capacity. So the patient-centered payment concept is based on the simple idea that we should pay for both of those services. The hospital should receive a standby capacity payment for each resident of the community, and those payments 
collectively would generate enough revenue to pay for the fixed costs of having an emergency department inpatient unit and other essential services in the community. The hospital then should also get a service-based fee every time it delivers a service to a patient, individual patient, but the service-based fee would be much lower than the current charges are for services because they would only have to pay for the extra cost that the hospital incurs mm-hmm. whenever it delivers another service because the standby capacity payment would already have been covering the fixed costs of those services. And then if you have smaller service-based fees, it means that individual patients would be better able to afford the care that they, when they need it, particularly if they're on a high deductible health plan or if they have no insurance at all. So under this system, if the hospital helps people in the community stay healthier and if people need fewer services, the hospital would still be able to get enough revenue to ensure that it can deliver the services that patients need. Conversely, there would no longer be an incentive for the hospital to deliver unnecessary services, which is what happens now with the high fees that get charged for individual services. Mm You know, fire departments don't support themselves by charging a high fee when there's a fire. And I don't think that right. it's it makes sense for rural hospitals to have to support themselves by charging high fees to people who happen to be unfortunate enough to have an injury or an illness. We need to be able to pay in a way that makes sense since everyone in the community is benefiting from having the hospital there. Remarkable. And... Uh, I, I'm going to ask a difficult question as a follow-up to that. You know, so so I have uh, you know, a good friend of mine, a congressman uh, that represents our district, Tim Wahlberg, who listens to this uh, podcast regularly. Uh, and we have, you know, state uh, representatives that listen to this podcast regularly. And, and they'll listen to this one, and we will push it out as well. So I love the concept. Uh, it makes sense. Sometimes if it's too logical, we got to try to, you know, you can't accept it. There's no it's way. It's not muddy enough it's, to it, actually be done. It, it's really, yeah. And, and, and it's just be, kidding because it hits at the heart of what we're dealing with, Harold, in rural health. It really does. And population health management and the list goes on and on. So in your estimation, so, you you know, you've developed this. Um, how do you how would you propose that this would get implemented? And uh, if we were to take steps, what would they look like to do that? And I guess the follow-up to that is, what would be our perceived barriers? Well, it's only going to get implemented if people demand it, um, and it needs to be implemented by every payer. So again, this is not something that one should just assume that is going to be a federal uh, solution. It also has to be done by health insurance plans, and health insurance plans are purchased by the people in the community that the hospital is located in. Um, And those health insurance plans are making a lot of money today under the current system. They're not going to change what they do unless people who live in the rural communities make it clear that they're only going to buy insurance policies from companies that will pay their local hospital adequately. Um, Doesn't do any good to have insurance if there's no place to use it because the hospital has been forced to close. Um, and so it's it's critical to people realize that the financial problems in most rural hospitals are not being caused by Medicare and Medicaid, that they're being caused by commercial insurance plans, and that includes Medicare Advantage plans. 
Um, and, and as I said earlier, commercial insurance plans pay the big hospitals um, uh, a lot more than what Medicare pays. And everybody assumes that the same thing is true in small rural hospitals when, in fact, it's exactly the opposite. Um, in many cases, uh, Medicare is the best payer. Um, so it's important for people to understand that it's also their insurance plans that may be doing this. And it's important for hospitals to let the people in the communities understand um, uh, that because the only way people will know which health plans are doing the right thing is if their local hospital tells them. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. rural hospitals need to, I think, start publishing information on which health plans are underpaying them so that and delaying their payments so the employers and the residents in the community can avoid those plans. I think that's particularly an issue right now, as I mentioned earlier, with Medicare Advantage. Um, there are a lot of seniors who are now signing up for Medicare Advantage plans based on all the advertising that's promising them zero premiums and free designer eyeglasses. And what they don't realize is that they may be putting their local hospital out of business by reducing the proportion of its payments that are coming um, from traditional Medicare. Um, and again, it's not yeah. just the amount of payments. It's whether the pay- whether the plans are actually paying claims at all and paying the claims um, in a timely fashion. I do think the other side of this is that rural hospitals have to be transparent about their costs. Um, uh, bad behavior by large hospitals uh, and health systems has made m- most people suspicious um, mm-hmm. that all hospitals are charging um, outrageously high prices and making big mm-hmm. profits. And I think that mm-hmm. rural hospitals, ha- it's not true in my experience with most small rural hospitals and rural hospitals need to make it clear that they are operating efficiently and that they're charging really only what is needed to be able to cover costs so that people will feel comfortable uh, demanding that they get paid for those uh, costs by their health insurance plans. Yeah, there's definitely a story that needs to be told, and that is uh, the purpose in which we created this podcast uh, to tell, you know, the the plight of the small rural hospital. Mm-hmm. And to your point, you know, many big systems that we're lumped into in terms of the conversation about, well, you have money and you have, you right, know, right. assets. They ch- I, my itemized and, bill said $3,500 for a single Tylenol, you know, that whole oh, line, um, which, you know, is fair in those kinds of settings. Right. But again, it's like, the you transparency know, we're in a different is, position. is what is, I think, so critical. And uh, in, in, in you hit the nail on the head. The transparency of our small rural hospitals to talk about it, to talk about those frustrations, which we have, Rachel, as mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, in the challenges. And we're not afraid to say mergers that bring two health plans together as one is not good for rural hospitals like ours mm-hmm. because we they price them themselves and they control the market in that mm-hmm. terms. And mm-hmm. so I've have, been known to refer to it as price fixing. Yeah, well, there is a little bit of that. Because it feels like that. It does feel like it. It and does. There, it are, so, there are some things that can be done at the state level about that. I mean, state insurance correct. departments, right. in fact, could start can start pressuring both for information and for to assure that um, when you say, you know, that this is an essential hospital and it needs to be paid adequately, that the state insurance departments 
can review what health plans are paying and how they're paying um, uh, to be able to determine that. And um, if the health plan isn't paying appropriately, then it shouldn't be allowed to sell insurance. Um, that's why we have insurance regulation is to ensure those kinds of things. So I think that's another thing that can be done at the state level. Could also be done. I mean, there could be federal regulation, but I think that's also things that individual uh, states can do. But it even comes down to the individual community, the employers in the community. Right. Um, the hospital itself as a purchaser of insurance for its, for its yes, employees, right. right, can decide yeah. that it's going to start put, sending its business to the health plans that do the right thing. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. For, you know, with all of the research that you do and the data that you've looked at and everything, have you seen a correlation um, with value and or quality when rural hospitals are acquired by larger systems? Because a lot of times you hear the line that they're selling is, oh, better quality care, access to capital, blah, blah, blah. Um, but is the quality of care really better for one? Um, and what is the, the value issue there as well? Because if a rural, if an independent rural hospital mm-hmm. is not charging what a system charges and then the system buys it, that's what they start charging, whether or not the quality changes that is going to impact the value of the care in the end as well. Well, there there have been uh, some recent studies showing that the claims about um, uh, better care and more efficiency in um, in large systems ha- are really overblown. Um, that in fact, mm-hmm. um, care often becomes more expensive, uh, or at least it gets charged more, um, and uh, is also less responsive in terms of uh, community community needs. I think the bigger issue is that um, is the short run versus the long run. You know, big systems have acquired small hospitals in some cases because. People waited too long to be able to do anything, and that was the only solution. Um, And Mm -hmm. then it turns Mm -hmm. out that several years later, the big system decides to either close that hospital or, I think, more Mm -hmm. insidiously to reduce the services that are available at that hospital um, and to try to then, you know, uh, direct more people um, to the to the larger hospital, and um, I think it's important for people to understand that um, um, mer- a merger is not the best solution. Um, uh, in, in my opinion, right. in, al- in almost any case, um, that you you I mean having an affiliation that provides you know appropriate access to specialists, if that's what it is, is fine. But that's different than saying. You know, we're restricted and we can only send patients, you know, to that particular hospital, whether they are the best hospital or not, or whether they have the best specialists. Um, And so I think that, um, again, this is something that I think rural hospitals need to make their communities understand um, is uh, what will happen if they are forced into that situation um, and uh, not, not also be left with that's the only available option because no one is willing to you know, get at payment adequate to be able to support the hospital as a freestanding entity. It feels to me a lot like the Walmart model of go into a community, set up <laughs> shop, start offering your super discounted prices, then when the mom and pop goes out because they can't compete with you, you can close their little neighborhood Walmart and make everyone drive to the super Walmart that's another 15 minutes up the road. Um, but it, it feels the same, like the same sort of, 
you know, model of right. how these hospitals get get purchased and then, to your point, may close later. And I think there could be, I guess we'll we'll see, but it feels like there could be some potential, too, for the even the rural emergency hospital designation to be um, abused in a in a similar way um, to potentially then put, you know, independent hospitals out of business and rural hospitals out of business. And, and that's why I refer to this as patient-centered payment, because it's not patient-centered yeah. to say, you know, you have coverage and you have access to care, but you have to drive an hour to be able to get it. That's right. um, you know, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to, to drive an hour for your lab test or your mammogram. Um, and so you're not going to get good care that way. Um, and a, right. services have to be available in the community. That doesn't mean that you need to have neurosurgery in the community, but it does mean that you need to have the basic kinds of services that are essential for communities. And uh, and again, I think that's something that rural hospitals have to make it clear. One of the things I found when I looked at the data was that many rural hospitals themselves didn't understand exactly where they were losing money Um, The assumption had been that it was inpatient services that were causing the biggest losses. And when I looked at a number of rural hospitals, I found that that was not the biggest loss. The biggest loss was the emergency department and the primary care clinic, because, again, health plans were paying too small an amount to be able to support the emergency department or the primary care clinic in a rural area. And those are the two most critical services. So you can take away the inpatient unit, but you're still going to then not have enough money to be able to support what the community really needs. That's right. Oftentimes I say we cannot be everything to everybody. And what we have to focus on with our high quality and low cost structure is, you know, the things that are impacting our community here in Hillsdale and the surrounding areas that we serve. And we watched as several hospitals in our region um, were purchased by a big system that those hospitals lost their obstetrics department, their psych unit, and and less services to communities that are plagued with loss of transportation. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have public transportation here in Hillsdale uh, County. We've got a city transit that really runs Monday through Friday, you know, 8 to 4, only will service the, the small city of Hillsdale. Countywide, nothing. And so when we think about this greater issue, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's hospitals that are able to sustain themselves. You will have better health outcomes for your patients because they are receiving that care locally and in their backyard. And uh, oftentimes we have people that argue with us, no, it's better just to affiliate. And then you can send those patients to the to the mothership and they can get that high quality care. No, that, that if you look at uh, us as a facility, our quality is very high. We really hone in on what we do well. Um, you know, we have great outcomes and, and we have lower cost structure. We don't have 16 vice presidents. Right. We have me. Right. We have Rachel. Uh, The bench strength is very, very small and uh, shallow. And at the end of the day, the services that we provide our community will not be provided by larger health systems because we know they are a cost to those systems. And so we look at this as, you know, in in a certain respect as, you know, charity work, like God's work, like, you know, missionary work, uh, because we know that in our obstetrics department where it's primarily Medicaid, we're going to lose. 
We know that in our psych unit, we're going to lose. But these are community assets and needs for our community. And and reform is needed. That's the message of today. Reform is needed to be able to sustain what we're doing here for these other services that that big hospitals will come in and just totally, totally annihilate from those communities. And could you imagine, Rachel, Hillsdale County without mental health services. We have a, a nine bed unit. Right. Could you imagine if we didn't, those patients would be in jail or mm-hmm. boarded in the emergency department right. with no place. Even with the unit we have, we see that happening because right. there's still not enough care. And that's obviously an, an issue right. across the country. Um, but that was one of the things I probably said that before on this podcast, when I interviewed with you for this job, however many years ago, when you said you had a psych unit, I was like, I'm sorry, come again. And that you had <laughs> built a new birthing center in 2015. I was like, Am I being pranked right now? Like, what yeah. are you talking about? <laughs> because that's not what you see rural hospitals doing right. because of that cost. Um, but so I guess my very last question would be, what is the immediate next step or next best step for rural hospitals to take to start pushing this type of payment model to the forefront of the conversation? Well, I would say there's two parts to the step. One is to be to make sure to educate their own community about um, the kinds of issues that we've talked about here. What is really causing the problem? Because a lot of this has been driven by incorrect assumptions about what is causing the problem. And then I think the second thing is that if rural hospitals believe that this patient-centered approach is a better approach, they need to stand up and say that and say that that's what they want. Um, Because what's happening is because there isn't a, a coherent proposal coming from the rural hospital community, I think rural hospitals are getting stuck with these bad solutions, um, you know, rural emergency hospital proposals and global budget proposals. Um, And I think that hospitals need to step up and say, here's what we want, but it has to be a responsible solution. It isn't just simply pay us more and pay us higher fees, you know, regardless of what the costs are. It's pay us for a system that actually will enable us to deliver high quality care Um, at an affordable cost for people in the community. And so I think, you know, and a lot of rural people in the the country, you know, and if they all got together and said, here's what we want, I think, you know, you could have a major impact in terms of uh, both health insurance plans um, and uh, Medicare and Medicaid. And that's our charge going forward. So if our rural hospitals are listening to this today, and we know that they are, uh, you're empowered to tell your story. You're empowered uh, to be transparent with your respective communities. Start the dialogue as to the why. Influence through your legislative process, uh, you know, the importance of changing this to protect our rural hospitals. And ultimately, um, there'll be pressure applied to, you know, the the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. They'll have to do something uh, because when the entire community rises and the politicians rise, There's not too many other places that these folks can hide. Mm -hmm. And so the key to that, and to Harold's point, in my my takeaway, you know, transparency, education, and awareness. It is so important. And oftentimes, Rachel, you know, we try to tell our story, but we're so just bogged down in the day-to-day operations uh, that we don't always get to tell our story. And Mm -hmm. I think that is what is most critical and important uh, in this journey. And uh, definitely a call for a new payment model uh, that must exist to keep our rural hospital sustained. So 
Thank you so much for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. It's been fascinating uh, to talk with you. And now we have a better perspective when we start quoting uh, your statistics and your numbers uh, at what is involved in coming up with those. And so I'm very appreciative today of your insight. And then um, I'm going to advocate for this. This is, mm-hmm. you know, patient-centered yeah. payment. You heard it here, patient-centered payment. And our communities across the country uh, and you're listening today, um, you are going to be empowered to make a decision that's going to save your rural hospitals. You have to start having dialogue about this exact opportunity of patient center payment. So thank you for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. We appreciate your time and your passion uh, and your hard work. Uh, it does go a long way for communities like Hillsdale when we say thank you. Well, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you for all the hard work you do delivering care to patients and for taking the time to try to actually get the word out about what would actually help you do a better job. You know, before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. And uh, what we ask for is your most unique experience uh, or one of your favorite memories that's unique to rural life. So can you share with our listeners today something that is just unique to your experience that you've had in a rural setting? Well, several years ago, I was driving across Washington State uh, to visit one of the small critical access hospitals uh, there. And it was a beautiful day, and the landscape in the state was just stunning. Uh, Steep cliffs and rivers and rolling farmland. Um, It was also a little scary, I would say, because at one point, I think I drove for a half an hour without passing a single car or a single uh, house. Um, and, um, but, um, I drove through, um, active farms, huge farmland, you know, and, uh, that is one of the areas of the country that grows the fruits and vegetables that, you know, go on our dinner tables, uh, every night. Um, and when you look at that and you say, and what in the world would they do without that small hospital? in the middle of all of that, Mm -hmm. of all of that land, you know, it makes you realize how important that hospital uh, is. I would have to say that when I finally did arrive in the the town where the hospital was located, I went to get gas for the car. And I suddenly realized that I wasn't sure if there was a gas station uh, in, in, in the town. Um, And the only gas station I saw in the middle of town was uh, closed. Uh, Fortunately, I discovered that there was gas available at the grain supply (laughs) behind the the train tracks, but it, (laughs) <laughs> but that also reminded me um, that the things that people take for granted in urban areas yes. um, are may not even mm-hmm. exist in a rural community. And that we need That's to right. recognize that they are not just miniature versions of urban areas and urban hospitals, but that they need different kinds of things and different attention to be able to deliver what we need from them. Exceptional. Well, when you visit Hillsdale, uh, just know we have about 23 gas stations. <laughs> so we will... <laughs> We will we will treat you well, okay? okay? You don't have to go to the Grange. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thanks again for the invitation. I appreciate it. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. 
Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.